Hey everyone, this is Justin Shell, one of the producers of the Citizen Science Podcast. Just a quick note before we get started. We're trying something different with this episode in terms of its format and structure. We're really happy with how it turned out, and we think you will be too. But feel free to give us some feedback on Twitter, at SciStarter, or via email at info at SciStarter.org. Okay, on to the show. One of the most prominent projects in the world of community and citizen science is iNaturalist, a mobile and web-based tool that allows anyone to upload photos of the living world and identify species within those photos for the larger study of biodiversity. iNaturalist has come up in some previous citizen science episodes, and we thought it'd be worth doing a deeper dive into the background of iNaturalist, how it works, how individuals and organizations use it, and what kinds of learning and discovery it enables. To do this, I reached out to Dr. Carrie Seltzer, who is the stakeholder engagement strategist for iNaturalist. I know that's kind of a wonky title, but my role is to help manage collaborations, um, but we're a pretty small team, so I wear a lot of hats, and I also help with communications and other outreach and occasionally doing interviews like this. Carrie first started working with Citizen Science while she was completing her PhD in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I didn't go into grad school expecting to work on citizen science. It was kind of on my radar, but not really. That changed when she joined a National Science Foundation program called the Integrative Graduate Education and Research Traineeship, or IGERT. This project was studying bee abundance and diversity in the greater Chicago area. I ended up working with someone who was in grad school for rhetoric. She was interested in the rhetoric of conservation. And we ended up trying to study what the participants got out of the experience. So that was really my first foray into citizen science. It was just a side project, but it was a really important side project, it turns out. Since finishing her PhD, it's been a winding path for Carrie that included positions at National Geographic and as a AAAS fellow at the National Science Foundation. It was that position at National Geographic, though, that she says really inspired the work she's doing today. When I read the job description, I was so excited because I just saw myself in it. It was drawing on my expertise as a professional ecologist and my connections in that world and had elements of education and outreach. At that point in time, what was happening with this National Geographic initiative called the Great Nature Project was that they were beginning a much closer relationship and integration with iNaturalist. And so when I started at National Geographic in 2014, working with iNaturalist as an external collaborator at that point was a big part of my job. And I loved it. And I very quickly was deeply excited by everything that iNaturalist can do to get people excited about the natural world and open their eyes to everything that lives in their neighborhood. And my ideas grew from there. Even though Carrie's only been at iNaturalist for a couple of years, the project itself dates back more than a decade. So iNaturalist started as a master's project by Kenichi Ueda, who's still co-director of iNaturalist. He was at the Berkeley School of Information, and he worked with a couple of other students on this final project called iNaturalist. The iNaturalist website first went live in March of 2008, and then in 2011, Scott Laurie met Kenichi and they started working together to promote iNaturalist. Kenichi's still focusing a lot on the technical infrastructure and Scott working a lot on the promotion. So Scott and Kenichi are the co-directors of iNaturalist. 
In 2014, iNaturalist joined the California Academy of Sciences, and that institutional support and security allowed for the project to add more technical and design staff to their team. And as of two years ago, iNaturalist became a joint initiative with the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society. Through all of these changes over the past decade, though, the core of iNaturalist is still the same. I like to describe iNaturalist as turning photos of plants and animals into useful data. And the way that happens is through crowdsourcing. iNaturalist allows people to upload photos of plants, animals, and other living things they see anywhere in the world to the iNaturalist database, where either you or members of the iNaturalist community can tag those photos with a species identification. You can use iNaturalist on your smartphone, which is optimized for taking and uploading photos from out in the world, or on a desktop computer, which has tools designed for identifying images submitted by its global community. Carrie says that much of this is made possible by smartphones having the ability to automatically add the necessary information to its photos. So nowadays, most of the photos that we take automatically include a geotag, which is very useful information about where you saw what you took a photograph of, and it's also time-stamped. So when you upload that photo to iNaturalist, then you've got some evidence of what you saw. You've got when you saw it, where you saw it. Uh, you have to create an account to upload to iNaturalist. So we've also got who saw it. And then even if you don't know what you saw, other folks in the iNaturalist community might. And so then people can suggest identifications. Or in the case where you know what you saw, other people in the community will confirm it. If you're mistaken about what you saw, they will correct it. Carrie believes that first-time users often don't want to make mistakes, so they won't try to identify what they saw. But she says that mistakes are more often than not quickly corrected. Plus, it offers a learning opportunity for the original identifier to better hone their observation skills. If you're unsure of what something may be, Carrie says, even a very general identification is a helpful starting point. Mistakes are okay in iNaturalist. Like, it's part of the learning process. What's really helpful is starting with just a very coarse identification. So all of the identifications on iNaturalist are attached to a single tree of life. And the root of the tree is all life. So if it doesn't have an identification at all, it sits in this hard to parse bucket of all life. But if you know that you saw a plant, even if you have no idea what kind of plant it is, adding the initial identification of plants is very helpful because then you've got people who want to help other people identify what they saw, and they might only be looking for plants. Someone might be able to come along and say, well, even if I don't know exactly what species it is, that looks to me like it's in the rose family. And then you might have specialists who will look at observations just in the rose family, and they might be able to take it to genus or to species. You'll often see images like these with a tag that says needs ID. In order to get out of this category, an observation will need agreement from multiple members of the community at the species level. If it gets agreement at the species level, then it gets a little tag called research grade. And those observations are the ones that we prioritize for external sharing with other data partners, such as the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which is a major global repository of biodiversity occurrence data. Carrie walked me through this correction process using one of my own observations, a photo I took in Colorado that I first labeled as a coyote. You posted a photo and you thought it was a coyote, so you added the identification of coyote, but someone else said, oh, it's not a coyote, it's a fox. So they added the identification 
of Fox. So then what would happen with the identification at that point, if there's just your identification that says coyote, the other person's identification that says Fox, is that it will look for where those two species meet on the tree and it will assign that level of specificity to your observation until somebody changes their identification, you can update it and agree like, oh, okay, I see that is actually a fox. Then it will go to fox. Or if other people come in and sort of outweigh the other identifications, then the identification will change. But so for a while, you know, you have observations that will sit there at like canids, since foxes and coyotes are both canids. So then you can have identifiers who specialize in canid observations, and they may be looking to help those observations that are stuck at that level and get them uh, back to species level. Even with more than 26 million observations contributed to date, one stood out immediately when I asked Carrie about her favorites. A picture of a Colombian weasel. This photo had been taken several years ago, but was only uploaded to iNaturalist at the end of 2018. Soon after, though, it became a much more interesting story. It was initially identified on iNaturalist as a fairly common species of weasel. But then, pretty quickly, the community did a little bit more research and realized, wait a minute, this seems to be a Colombian weasel. The thing about Colombian weasels is that there were no known photographs of Colombian weasels until this one that randomly appeared on iNaturalist by a guy who's really into snails. <laughs> So the Colombian weasel was only known from a handful of museum specimens, and the most recent one of those was, I think, collected in the late 90s. So this was an exciting observation for the community, and it ended up being a really exciting observation for social media as well, because one of the main photos was of this weasel on the toilet. It was a separate outdoor bathroom that it had gotten trapped in, and the original observer snapped a, a few pictures and you know, it was running around trying to get out. And so it was on a shelf, it was on a toilet. Um, so it got popular on Twitter, for example, under the hashtag toilet weasel, because it's just so funny to think about this rare mammal being spotted in someone's toilet <laughs> and being a really important scientific discovery. The toilet weasel observation was the subject of a recent publication, and you can find a link to it in this episode's show notes. That sense of discovering the unexpected while contributing to the larger scientific community is a motivation for both individuals who use iNaturalist as well as larger biodiversity organizations. At a personal level, it can help satisfy your curiosity about the identification of some cool caterpillar that you come across or some weed that's popped up in your garden and you want to know if it's an invasive or something that you might want to keep and cultivate. I look at every walk <laughs> down a sidewalk now as an opportunity to look for something. So in my head, the things when I walk around, the things that I'm looking for are blooming, moving, or dead. <laughs> dead things are easy to photograph. And blooming things, if I don't know what it is, someone else is going to be able to identify it. And moving things, I, I stop for insects that catch my eye or birds that I think I can actually take a picture of with my iPhone, things like that. Beyond one person using iNaturalist to learn more about the world around them, 
organizations can make use of the infrastructure that iNaturalist provides to accomplish their own engagement and research goals. One example that I like to think about is maybe a small protected area or a nature center. It's very common at nature centers to have a board, like, what did you see today? And people will write, like, I saw a deer, I saw a blue jay, I saw a snail, I saw a turtle. And iNaturalist is like that, but dynamic and crowdsourced and continuously updated. And so if you have a site like that and you want to keep track of what people are seeing over time, iNaturalist is a tool to leverage for that purpose. A, a small nature center would never build something like iNaturalist on their own, right? That's too big of a lift, but it's out there and it's available for all these different groups to use to answer these questions about what people are seeing when they visit. One organization that uses iNaturalist in this vein, like many around the world, is the Appalachian Mountain Club, the oldest outdoor group in the United States. It was originally created in 1876 to explore and preserve the White Mountains in New Hampshire, but has expanded throughout the Northeast, with chapters ranging from Maine to Washington, D.C. We spoke with two Appalachian Mountain Club staff and one volunteer about their experience using iNaturalist and how it has contributed to the organization's engagement and research. First is Georgia Murray, a staff scientist at AMC. She's the co-lead of the National Geographic-funded Northeast Alpine Flower Watch Project, which makes use of iNaturalist for images and observations. The project focuses on phenology, the study of when certain biological events that depend on the climate of a given area take place. When we started the project, we really wanted a citizen science component because the Appalachian Mountain Club has a mission of education, conservation, and recreation. So we really care about people learning when they're outside as well. So this project in particular really came out of us looking for a tool that would help us work with citizen hikers in contributing to the project in a way that was accessible to them. We also spoke with Annie Evenko, a research assistant with AMC. My role is to help promote the Northeast Alpine Flower Watch. We spend a lot of time talking to visitors to the White Mountains and other Northeast Alpinist areas to promote iNaturalist and taking photos for the project. I came to the project because as a young kid, I was really interested in the outdoors and that led me into biology, which eventually ended up bringing me to the iNaturalist platform through the Centennial National Parks BioBlitz at the Boston Harbor Islands Recreation Area. So ever since then, in 2016, I've been recording observations of wildlife during my work and travels. And I, I actually started out with Northeast Alpine Flower Watch as a volunteer. I started taking photos for the project before I became the research assistant, and I will continue to do it even after I stop working at the AMC. I'll, I'll be doing this for the rest of my life. Finally, we spoke with Alina Michalovich, a volunteer with a number of AMC projects. Basically, I'm a hiker that likes to take a lot of photos of plants. I grew up in New Hampshire. I recently, as an adult, discovered the great resources that we have in the White Mountains for hiking and being outdoors. Um, I was volunteering at one of the AMC huts doing trail maintenance. Prior to that, I had mostly been hiking like point A to point B and back up to a peak. Um, and you're kind of going, going, going when you're hiking. And I had this opportunity to stay in the hut 
time to slow down and really look around at the flowers that were there and the plants and just like watch the weather. And one of the leaders of that trip actually said, hey, it seems like you're really interested in the flowers. Why don't you take one of the trail guides and take a walk out this afternoon? And so I did. I took a walk around Lonesome Lake, which is a really nice high elevation lake here in the White Mountains and discovered some plants. And I really felt like I was discovering them. I was an explorer. And here were these great flowers that only grow in the high elevations. It was so wonderful. And I really wanted a way to learn more about the plants. And I didn't really know how to do that. And so that's how I came to High Naturalist in the project. A couple of weeks after that trip, this team had a webinar for the project. And I was so excited because iNaturalist was a way that I could get help with identifying the plants from experts and also to contribute to something larger, which was really exciting. As Georgia mentioned earlier, AMC wanted to include citizen science in their different projects since the beginning and had tried out different ways to make this happen. As we tried out different methodologies and sort of learned as AMC first began citizen science, what worked and what didn't work with our hiking audience, we learned a lot of lessons along the way. We started out with paper data sheets and maps, asking hikers to record information on those data sheets and mark on a map where they were because location is really important for this project, obviously. Where was the plant when you saw it in flower, especially in the mountains where you have a lot of spatial variability. You're going up in elevation or you might um, be on a south-facing slope or a north-facing slope. And so that variability and where you are in the mountains, it really matters for us. With the help of a student from the University of Vermont, the group was able to do a more thorough evaluation of these attempts. We learned that our hiking audience had some trouble with always marking their map correctly or getting data sheets back. And so, you know, we were sort of semi-successful with our citizen science effort at that time. And then iNaturalist came into being, and I think what was so attractive about iNaturalist was it is a database of data that's already there. We're interested in a certain set of alpine plants and a certain set of woodland herbs as well. And we were seeing them on iNaturalist already. But then we realized how easy it was to use for hikers, how you don't need cell service to be able to use iNaturalist for it to geolocate where you are in the trail. The community that's already there, there's experts on iNaturalist helping you identify what plants are there. So we were really excited when we sort of re-stumbled upon iNaturalist a few years after it got started and said, wow, this is what we've been looking for to have our hiking audience really help us with this project. The staff at the AMC have also been able to supplement the core data fields of iNaturalist with some specific to their project. This allows the platform to serve their own research needs without compromising the interoperability of the data they collect with larger research studies. They do allow you to add other observation fields. So for researchers like us, where our question is not about biodiversity, it's about flowering timing, phenology, we um, added observation fields that matched the National Phenology Network protocol that we've been using all along and continue to use in our permanent plots that we have our hut seasonals uh, monitor for us. And so now we've got iNatural Citizen Science data coming in. We're able to add those observation fields that mirror the protocols that we're using in the National Phenology Network database. So that's another really excellent feature for researchers 
that are looking to add to what is already coming in on iNaturalist. One iNaturalist feature that I've made use of is its ability to save photos and observations even when you don't have a cellular or Wi-Fi signal. Once you get back to a signal, you can upload them. This is particularly helpful for AMC. For us in the mountains, we are often on the trail where we don't have cell service. So what we tell folks that are out there, they don't have cell service, is to wait till they get back. At the end of their hike, they can get back, relax, have a cup of tea, and go back through their iNaturalist observations um, when they have Wi-Fi or cell service. Alina elaborated how she makes use of this feature. I take pictures while I'm hiking, and then I often don't identify them or add the additional data or information until I get home. And it's a wonderful way for me to connect with the outdoors and the hike that I did on the weekend when I'm drinking my morning coffee before work, for example. That's often when I'm kind of going through and tagging things to the different projects and putting in um, the species and stuff. So I love that feature. It's really just like take a picture and keep going, which is great. Um, and then I've learned a lot through using iNaturalist as well, identifying the plants. And also after the hike, you can also go and look and look at the range across the world of where that particular species grows, which I really like too. So I like the data aspect, the scientific aspect of it, but also just the way it helps me engage with what's around me. Another feature that Georgia and other members of AMC find helpful is the integration of computer vision into iNaturalist, which will suggest observations based on visual similarity. And that feature, that artificial intelligence feature, can then um, suggest what they saw. When they're out in the field, they can take that photo and say, boy, I really want to know what this is. I think that's the curiosity of folks is what is this, you know, and um, that's what iNaturalist can help them with. Carrie told me a little bit more about how these suggestions work. For the first several years of iNaturalist, it was entirely crowdsourcing. There was no automatic recommendations based on visual similarity. But as of a couple years ago, we've implemented a computer vision model, which we update a couple times a year, that purely based on visual similarity will make suggestions. So what this means is that it can only suggest species or taxa that we have enough data to actually train on. So this means that for species from parts of the world where we don't have very much iNaturalist activity yet, they might not come up as suggestions. When Carrie says the model is trained, she means that it's trained on the hundreds of thousands of observations from the iNaturalist community over the past 10 years. It's well-trained in certain places around the world, like California, northeastern North America, and New Zealand. But because it's trained only on visual similarity, you might get some interesting suggestions. You might get a suggestion for a New Zealand endemic species based solely on visual similarity, even if you're, I don't know, in the middle of Florida. That's an area where we've got room for improvement and some ideas for how to reduce the likelihood of users selecting these sort of wildly geographically inappropriate identifications for their observations. It's always important when you are looking at the computer vision suggestions that pop up on iNaturalist to click the little info and take a look and see where that species has actually been observed on iNaturalist. And if most of the dots are far, far away from where you are located, it's probably not that. If it is that, then you may have a really interesting observation of either a cultivated garden plant, potentially, or a new invasive species. 
staff of AMC use observations contributed by their members, as well as the larger iNaturalist community, to study the effects of climate change on the plants of the White Mountains, as well as other areas of the Northeast. We're lucky enough to have some long-term climate data right here in the White Mountains from uh, Joe Dodge, who was around in the 30s and started monitoring weather. Uh, he was also a co-founder of the Mount Washington Observatory. And so we have a really unique climate data set at mid-elevation, about 2,000 feet, where we are right here in Pinkham Notch, and then on the top of Mount Washington at the summit. Georgia says that this data, which goes back to 1935, shows annual warming at both locations. Now the goal is to better understand the impacts that warming has on plants in this area, which ones are potential winners and losers as temperature and precipitation patterns continue to change. They'll do that by combining this data with multiple other sources, including AMC stations, iNaturalist, and citizen science data from the National Phenology Network. So really we're tracking the plant phenology or the timing of flowering and the timing of fruiting, these um, annual events that happen for plants each year to get a sense of which plants are strong responders to shifting climate, such as earlier springs, which plants get out right away when the temperatures change, and which ones may not respond really strongly to shifts in temperature. So we're going to be looking at all of those factors when we put all of these pieces of data together, including our long-term plot data with the National Phenology Network, layering on top of that data set. Because we can't be everywhere all across the mountain, and but the mountain is very variable in the types of microclimates you get. It's going to fill in some of those gaps spatially and also temporally. We're going to get a lot more data throughout the season as well. Carrie sees this work as a particularly innovative way of combining different kinds of data for phenology. So the Alpine Watch program is a very cool example of a group that's using iNaturalist one possibility is that that study may be able to describe a protocol for inferring phenology from iNaturalist observations in a way that's useful in other geographic areas, perhaps areas outside of North America or places where National Phenology Network maybe hasn't been as active. It may be that they also come up with some ideas for ways that we could be treating phenology a little bit differently on iNaturalist that would be more effective, result in more effective and useful data. Since the data on iNaturalist can be downloaded by anyone, it can facilitate many of these kinds of research projects, whether individual projects like AMCs or wider projects that could be found through the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, or GBIF. We discussed GBIF back in episode two of the Citizen Science Podcast, but for those who haven't listened to it yet, GBIF is a research infrastructure that aggregates biodiversity data from around the world. It has more than 1.3 billion records available for download, including observations from iNaturalist. Each time someone goes to GBIF and downloads data that includes iNaturalist observations, it will generate something called a Digital Object Identifier, or DOI. And then when the DOI is cited, if that DOI contained at least one record from iNaturalist, then the papers that are using that download get sort of credited back to the iNaturalist data set on GBIF. With more than 400 publications using iNaturalist data, there are lots of cool research stories that may not have been possible otherwise. Carrie told me about one that had to do with dragonfly wing color. What I think is especially noteworthy about this project is that they were looking at the geographic variation in wing color of a very common species of dragonfly. And there were over 
I think, 3,000 observations just of this one species of dragonfly. And because almost every observation on iNaturalist has a photo associated with it, they had this enormous data set of photos where you can see a variety of coloration features across a broad geographic scale. So the photos on iNaturalist, not just the point records, but like the photos themselves, using those to test hypotheses about why dragonflies in different parts of the country might have different colored wings is, I think, unlocking the sort of next level of biodiversity research that's possible with data like iNaturalist, which is occurrence records with photographs attached, where you can start to use the features of the photographs to answer these questions that you maybe could have only addressed in the past with museum specimens. The research outputs that come from the iNaturalist team themselves are all related to their work with computer vision and biodiversity. Moreover, they've rolled this work into a completely separate app called Seek. So if you open the camera in the Seek by iNaturalist app and you start pointing it at living things, it's in real time going to run the computer vision and make suggestions based on what's coming through the camera feed in real time. So for example, if you open up Seek and you point it at a bunch of plants, it's probably just gonna say dicots because it can't give you a finer identification. But if you get closer and closer to something and maybe get a nice clear view of a clump of leaves or of a flower, then it may be able to have a high enough confidence species level match that it'll say the name of the species. And if you tap the camera button at that point in time, you can get a badge for finding that species and recording it in Seek. Just as of the beginning of June, you can optionally submit observations to iNaturalist from Seek. A couple of things to keep in mind about Seek are that it's extremely privacy conscious. And so the observations that you make in Seek are only stored on your Seek device. We have very little data from Seek about how it's used unless people go through that optional step to submit observations to iNaturalist after they've logged into an iNaturalist account. In addition to further development of Seek, the iNaturalist team is continually looking to improve users' experiences with the platform. And this means talking with their community, without which the project wouldn't be possible. And so we now have a whole section of the iNaturalist forum for feature requests. And I think there's over 100 feature requests in there right now. We are constantly getting suggestions from the community about things that we should tweak or change or replace. When they're little easy things, sometimes we can get them done quickly. The community is also really helpful when they find bugs, not insects, but computer software bugs. <laughs> um, those are the bugs we don't like. We love, love the wild bugs. Um, when we're doing major feature development, we often will ask for input from the community because we know that um, there are lots of folks who are really invested in how iNaturalist works and it's a big part of their life. And so we want to get their ideas before we make major changes. Two particular members of that community, Alina and Annie, both talked about the new kinds of things they've learned by using iNaturalist. 
For Alina, it's about changing the way she engages with the world around her. I think what the project in general has done for me is it really has changed the way that I see the space around me while I'm hiking. As the elevation changes, you go through different kinds of forests with different plants and different flowers, different trees. And so now I feel really in tune to the the way that it's blooming around me over the the summer and the spring into the fall. And as you go up higher, you see different things. And so it's really changed the way I see the hike and engage with the mountains. For Annie, it's about better understanding other kinds of species outside her own area of expertise and how these all fit together as part of broader ecosystems. I'm a plant person that's currently learning how to identify birds. But when you're out using iNaturalist, you can help both projects simultaneously. You can listen for the birds. You can take photos of the undergrowth species. If you happen across a toad or a caterpillar, you can take a picture of that. And I I know from just reading the Vermont Center for Ecosystem Studies page that with that project, they've been able to identify 12 new species in Vermont. So even if we are focusing on certain species that we know exist in the White Mountains and across the Northeast, there's a potential to discover completely new unknown things about our own backyards. As for the next steps of the AMC's projects, Georgia says it needs to be a lot of the same. Because it's linked to climate change, it's a long-term monitoring project. So what's definitely next is year after year, we're going to keep collecting this type of information. And so, you know, some citizen scientists may say, well, I took a picture last year of this diapensia on the same trail. But it's really important to have that information every single year because you might have a really early spring or like this year, we had a fairly late melt out and late start to spring and summer in the mountains. And so we need that data coming in each year to put in this long term data set to really understand climate change. However, she sees iNaturalist as allowing the group to expand into areas they didn't think were possible beforehand. We have the Northeast Alpine Flower Watch Project which is new this year. We piloted the flowers and fauna of the White Mountain National Forest and flowers and fauna of the Appalachian Trail last year. And those projects are really growing. We're really excited to see that we can track painted trillium all the way from Maine to Georgia along the Appalachian Trail. It's really exciting to just look at the AT as a potential monitoring transect. And when you look at the iNaturalist data set, you can see that there's data to be analyzed that's been collected through iNaturalist along the Appalachian Trail. So it's really a goldmine of information for researchers. And so I encourage folks to just start exploring what's in iNaturalist already and I am sure you will get excited to ask your own research questions. You can find links to iNaturalist, the Appalachian Mountain Club, GBIF, SEEK, and much more in the show notes for this episode. Citizen Science is produced by Caroline Nickerson and Justin Schell in association with SciStarter. Special thanks to Jill Nugent for conducting the interview with Georgia, Annie, and Alina from the Appalachian Mountain Club. Music for this episode is from MWD, used under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback on what we've done so far and ideas for what we could do next. Send us a note at info at 
If you like the show, please rate or review us on your podcast platform of choice, or simply send it to a friend. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you then.